tonight on Elvis Book Club. Understandably, the healing business was kept quiet, even among our group. In the 70s, though, I witnessed hundreds of concertgoers carrying their sick or crippled children to the stage and crying out, Elvis, please touch my baby. Or, Elvis, just hold her for a minute. Few fans knew of his studies then, and yet thousands apparently sensed that he had some ability to heal. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Elvis Book Club. I'm here talking to my good friend, Pat. What's up, Pat? Hey. I'm Brad. Uh, what do we read this week, Pat? This week we read If I Can Dream, Elvis's Own Story by Larry Geller, who is, uh, as billed on the front cover of this book, his close friend, confidant, and spiritual advisor. Yet another confidant. But this one has some uh, has a pretty good pedigree. Yes. In addition to all those things, he was Elvis's personal hairstylist. Hair architect. <laughs> yes. To use his phrase, hair architecture. Who is this dude? So Larry Geller was introduced to Elvis in Southern California in the 60s when Elvis was making movies. Um, yeah. It should be noted that Elvis's previous hairstylist name was Sal Orifice. Is it possibly pronounced some different way, like Orifique or something like that? <laughs> I think he is Italian. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, spelled in an unfortunate way, I would say. Larry was, at the time, part of Jay Sebring's salon. Jay Sebring, of course, world famous hairstylist. Yeah, and Manson victim. uh, Invented a certain way of cutting men's hair that propelled him to fame and fortune, uh, which he called hair architecture. And he also invented using a handheld blow dryer on men's hair. Which blows my mind. No pun intended. <laughs> I bet it does. Why does it blow your mind? Well, handheld hair dryers, it's just something I take for granted, Brad. The it's, fact that that had to be discovered is just, it's, a, it's amazing to me. Yeah. Well, it, take, it takes a pioneer. So Elvis beckons Larry to the home or his house in L.A. They inevitably hole up in his bathroom. Right. Which is disgusting. And how long, <laughs> and that became then the pattern for the rest of their relationship. Right. There'd be a session of doing hair and then an even longer session of heart-to-heart talks about mm. spiritual matters. Yeah. Which is Larry's big thing. He's got a real interest in all things spiritual. And these extended talks all took place in a closed bathroom, which I find personally vomitous. I mean, at the very least, I imagine a very claustrophobic situation. Guys like sitting on the, the floor their heads against the toilet and stuff (laughs) just chilling but i'm sure elvis had a a bigger bathroom than that yeah but probably not that big i mean it was the 60s yeah so our ideas of what's a what a large bathroom is nowadays i think back then it was just unheard of but i do picture his bathrooms always having very thick carpeting yeah see in in my mind's eye it's a tile floor Mm. but it's got a real like skein of Grodiness. Yeah. Like old pee around the back of the toilet. Yep. And hair. Elvis's baby fine hair. Right. Yeah. Limp baby fine hair. Right. Jet black. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd take tile over carpeting. Carpet in a bathroom. Too, but I mean, yeah. With the tile you you see exactly what you're getting. Yeah. Maybe with the carpet you could fool yourself into thinking that it wasn't as gross as it is. I feel like with the carpet, it's kind of the difference between old horror movies where they leave it all to your imagination mm-hmm. and new horror movies where you see it all. You see it I all. Think that's carpet versus tile in a bathroom. <laughs> yeah. 
Ugh. But we should move on. Well, in that first meeting, I just got to say this too. In the first meeting too, like I'm sure down the line, well, I think Larry even references at some point, maybe it's at Graceland, like there's a big heavy barber chair in his personal dressing room or whatever. But just in that first meeting, I just, I feel like Elvis just like whips out a lawn chair (laughs) (laughs) back to the sink, like (laughs) has Larry shampoo his hair. It probably, it's probably not far off. I mean, I don't think Elvis in his house, do you think he had one of those like barber sinks that have like the indentations he could rest your neck on it? Eventually, he probably did at that time. Like by the time he meets Larry, I think he's made a couple of movies. He's, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And he bought a Hollywood house. Yeah. So I think those are probably, that's probably standard. Yeah. Right. I would think so. You know how they are out there. (laughs) Yeah. In Hollywood. So this first meeting, Larry cuts his hair, does a bang up job, I'm sure. And I, I think he cuts his hair in the book, it says for 30 to 60 minutes. Then they spend like, I don't know, is it like three hours? The talking goes on for a lot longer than the haircut. Because at the end of the actual clipping, Elvis says something to the effect of, you know, Larry, I hear you're an interesting guy. What are you into? And Larry's like, you know, Larry's a proto-hippie, proto-new age. Yeah. This is still kind of the mid-early 60s. Um, And he unloads his spiel of, you know, all his spiritual thoughts. And Elvis says something to the effect of, whoa, whoa, man. Larry, I don't believe it. I mean, what you're talking about is what I secretly think about all the time, (laughs) especially at night when I'm in bed. (laughs) So Elvis has finally found someone who uh, can speak directly to his heart. And so with many people who enter Elvis's lives, especially as told in books they write, Elvis has immediately found <laughs> his, there's his soulmate. And what's definitely true is Elvis, in keeping with his character, you know, wants this person there all the time. And like, you're now working for me. Full-time guy. I don't remember necessarily if there was any real lag between the first meeting and... there. I mean, if the, the lag, it, there's not much lag if there is. And basically Elvis calls him up and says, you should come work for me. And then he goes to the J.C. Ring salon, pretty much immediately goes and like gives his notice, which J.C. Ring isn't oh, right. too cool with, right? So there's a little static around that, but he leaves. And his haste in, in packing up his junk at the salon he falls and like hurts his arm. Right, right. And uh, uh, he doesn't want to take care of it because he's afraid that if he has to like take time off to let his arm heal, that, that he's going to miss this opportunity with Elvis. So the next day he goes on set and cuts Elvis's hair with a very painful arm, which he finds out <laughs> later is broken. <laughs> I've fallen into similar traps. I remember when I was first dating the woman who I eventually married. And then eventually, eventually divorced. She had a very busy job. Uh, so I had very few periods of time to really hang out with her. Mm-hmm. And it was the, uh, it was cold and flu season. Uh, so I was very worried about getting sick. Yeah. So I was constantly taking enormous amounts of like airborne, uh-huh. you know, all that shit. Yeah. Which just makes, I don't know how it reacts to other people, but me, it just made me poor sweat. <laughs> <laughs> and so- Often we'd be hanging out and I would just be dripping sweat because oh, I had man. been like so concerned about being ill. Well, you know, Elvis would be really impressed by that because there's, <laughs> there's a story in this book about sweating. It's like Sam Cooke. I think it's Wilson Pickett. Wilson Pickett. was the sweater. Yeah. Elvis goes to see him in concert and is super impressed that he sweats so much. And so after the show, the secret is Wilson Pickett like takes a bunch of like a handful of salt pills, which I guess is not very good for you, but then you sweat a lot and I guess it looks really cool on stage. Did Elvis use that technique? I don't know. He may have used it as a weight loss technique. I bet Elvis was sweating plenty. I mean, certainly in the later years, he was sweating without any need to take pills. Yeah. 
And I also think during his early years, I always imagine that heavily pomaded hair oh, would yeah. get you. Like, it's not breathing at all, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. It, it just feels like you'd just be pouring sweat anyway. I would, I would think so, Ugh. yeah. Getting much zits on your scalp from Ugh. all that, right? Yeah. You get some air in there. Yeah. You, need the, you gotta go with the dry look. Yeah. Yeah. Use a blow dryer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Larry... He's a Southern California kid of somewhat interesting pedigree, and his dad was had a couple fun professions. Yes. What's your what do you, what do you I consider just, the funnest? I, I love this detail. As a as a young man, Larry's father played in a couple of different harmonica groups, which I guess was a big thing in yeah. vaudeville at the time. The names of these these groups. Bora Minovich's Harmonica Rascals, <laughs> and later on he played with Joey Hoffman's Ragamuffins. Which <laughs> those both sound like SCTV I, creations. Yeah, harmonica combos were were a big deal. I know when I first started buying used records in the '90s, you know, you go to thrift stores and it was stuffed. Like you would find a zillion Christmas albums, of course, like Firestone Christmas. Yeah. And then there was always like a Johnny Pueblo, always a bunch of harmonica albums, which is insane. Yeah. Like, the idea of like, oh, I want to relax after a hard day's work, listen to like six guys playing harmonica at once. Yeah. It's like nuts. <laughs> Tastes change, I guess. Maybe it has something to do with all these guys coming back from World War II. Like maybe all like their ears are blown from mortars and like somehow maybe that's like a tone that can get into their ears. You know? I don't know. So beyond being a professional harmonicist, Larry's father, in his free time, was a healer, right? Yes. And it kind of starts, they come to Southern California, like the whole family. Larry's grandma went out one day and she was wearing a fake fur. And because she looked like a rich lady in a fur, she was abducted and ended up murdered and thrown in the ocean. And this had a huge effect on the family, obviously. It caused Larry's mom to sort of question everything. And as she gets into her spiritual journey, the dad, I guess, is open to that too. And he starts studying the art of Jorei, J-O-H-R-E-I, which is a focused energy healing. The laying on of hands, basically, but I think with an Eastern origin, maybe Japanese. He gets into this like healing touch stuff, at which he practices on Larry while Larry is asleep. That's right. <laughs> and and the, the grandmother's murder also has a... A spiritual aspect in that when th when this happened, Larry was on his, on a bus on his way back from scout camp, and on this trip home, his gaze is drawn to the ocean, yeah, and thoughts of his grandmother. And when he gets home, he finds out his grandma's been murdered. So freaky. For some reason, this brings to mind like the Black Dahlia. Yeah, like I think Larry's grandma was like beaten to death, probably or stabbed. I don't know. I don't know if they go into like how exactly she got it, but I imagine they like beat her up really bad and threw her in the ocean. She's, Is that what you imagine? That's what I... <laughs> but I could very easily see her just eviscerated on the side of the road, just like the Black Dahlia. Just like the darkness of Southern California, Jay Sebring, the, the relationship to Manson with that, the murder of Larry's grandmother, and that dark aspect of California really touches Larry. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a real James Elroy kind of Yeah, world, exactly. Right? And it's the same time frame, too, yep. 50s yeah, yeah. and stuff. So it, he really is in that. And beyond that, Larry, as a boy, is friends with... Phil Spector. Yeah, another nexus of Southern oh, California darkness. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting for Larry to come out of that. And it's funny, none of that really touched 
Elvis. Like, you, I don't associate that stuff with Elvis. But you mentioned to me another time that, like, while, like, the Manson murders are going on, he ha- he's present in Los Angeles at that time making movies, so. Yeah, that had never occurred to me that, you know, as you always hear about the paranoia in the community of stars in that area immediately after the Manson murders. Mm-hmm. Immediately after, like, Sebring and Sharon Tate got murdered. Right. And yeah, I'd never considered the fact that, yeah, of course, Elvis had a house there. He right. was living there. He was part of the year. So he was involved in that. And then, yeah, that was a short leap to realizing that that was, in fact, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I wish we had seen. Yeah. Which is the Manson family breaking into a house yeah. that's Elvis <laughs> and the Memphis Mafia. It's Red West and yeah. Sunny yeah, and yeah. Lamar and yeah. Charlie. Yeah. Charlie crying in the corner yeah. as the rest of them just crowded these girls to death. Oh, I know. It's, somebody's definitely going to get it with a pool cue in that oh, in that dude. movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Elvis is a known offender with pool cues. Yeah, or cue balls, depending cue ball. on who you're listening to, I guess. Oh, dude, they would tear them up. <laughs> yeah. I could see it, too, where like they spend a whole bunch of time just like beating those people to death. And then as an afterthought, Elvis is like, oh, yeah, I'm also like strapped. Just like <laughs> shoot, goes around dude. just like shooting guys, putting them out of their misery. One in each hand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's Elvis. Then just throws them all in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> and then the cops show up and Elvis is waving with his badges. Like, it's all right. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> My name's right here in this book. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. Let's talk, before we move too far away from it, I do want to talk about, you'd mentioned briefly that Larry's father would practice his healing art on Larry when he was asleep. Yeah. And what was the story? Like he had like some boyhood injury. Yeah. So it says here that Larry's dad, when I asked him why he practiced Joe Ray on me only when I slept, he confided that he had been worried I'd resist the treatment and that people who heard about it would scoff. When I told my father that I wanted to learn about Joe Ray, he was pleasantly surprised and agreed to teach me. Uh, well, this healing then became a big part of Elvis's and Larry's relationship, where Elvis would, especially as he got in later years of his life and his health started to decline precipitously, he would very often be asking Larry to come in and lay some hands on him and heal. Yeah, yep. At the end of the book, Larry goes into his retelling of Elvis's last year of his life, and there are moments where he's, he's he seems to be almost constantly in pain. Yeah. Always looking for something to help him. And this is a guy who's already just like filled to the brim with drugs. Right. They're not doing anything. You know, at one point he has all these bruises all over him. Yeah. From like, I think a failing kidney. Yeah. Uh, or, or liver, I guess. Yeah. He's, Elvis has got a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Among them, at least by Vernon's standards, is uh, being Jewish. That's right. So it's in, Is Elvis Alive, the author, makes a big deal of there being a Jewish star on Gladys's grave and there wasn't one on Elvis's. Well, I think the reason for that is uh, I don't think Vernon was too fond of Judaism. Yeah. And I don't know that that's an attitude that he like went out of his way to cultivate as much as it was just sort of a, the cultural norm of the South. Yeah, it it doesn't seem like he's necessarily that as much as he is just conscious of the greater community's attitudes. Gladys pulls aside a young Elvis and confides to him that her maternal grandmother was Jewish. Right. And this is kind of a bombshell from this book, right? That Elvis is a Jewish entertainer? Is yeah. Never, it's never been a part of his bio at no. all. And, and it's interesting to note also that Gladys reveals this to Elvis, but then is kind of 
wants him to keep it on the the hush hush because one of the big reasons is like daddy wouldn't like that yeah that's part of it but i think also just the general vibe down there at that time yeah seemed not too encouraging of that right so they hit it off the guys are not necessarily immediately welcoming to larry no and i don't know that they're ever very welcoming with larry with the exception of, I guess I would be mistaken in including Vernon in the guys. Vernon mm-hmm. is his own category. Yes. Vernon, we can say, at beginning was hesitant yes. to embrace Larry. But as time goes on, especially towards the end of the book, he spends a lot of time dressing down the guys and then pulling Larry aside and being very clear that Larry isn't part of that. Yeah, like, you're Larry's not part good. of the problem. Larry's one of the good ones. Yep. And Vernon's very appreciative of everything he's done for Elvis. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. The guys are very cold to Larry to be start, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's a male hairdresser from Southern California. Right. Who's spending hours at a time in the bathroom with their boss. Talking about books. Right. And none of them are fond of books. No. Whatsoever. At one point, I remember there was a quote, something about Priscilla coming in at one point. Priscilla also eventually didn't really care for the spiritual books. Right. And she comes in at one point and says, oh, what are you guys doing? Oh, I see. Reading. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the guys are even more coarse in yeah. their disdain. And they and Larry's got a lot going against him with those guys. So, I mean, the fact that he have reads, that's bad. The, yeah. The subject matter, I'm sure, did not help. Like the spiritual stuff. Larry's accused of using psychology on people. Yeah. At one point, one of the Memphis Mafia makes the remark that Elvis is upstairs reading. He goes, oh, he's up there scrambling his brains. And Larry also, so he becomes a target of their frustration, I think, because they can't express their frustration with Elvis, right? So Larry becomes kind of their de facto lightning rod. Their discomfort with Elvis's spiritual quest, they can't take it out directly on Elvis. Exactly. Since Larry is part and parcel of that, they yeah. can they can ride Larry. But I mean, it. as far as what's related in the book, it doesn't come to much more than just like some snide comments here and there. Yeah. There are a couple of more serious run-ins with Red in particular, but like they, they certainly get along day to day just fine. But Larry's never really one of the guys either. Though in reading the book, I could very much imagine that this is a situation where none of the other guys, if you read their recollections of Larry, None of them would think they thought of Larry any different than the rest of them. Yeah. There is a vibe to Larry that you can kind of see him maybe having a bit of an outsider complex. I see. Yeah. Maybe yeah, that makes sense. But there is some choice stuff. I mean, at one point, Larry's like playing Beethoven or something. Larry being the- Cultured. The, the, yeah, the Renaissance man that he is. <laughs> um, there's a lot of like downtime on movie sets when he's doing Elvis's hair. So one of the things he does to pass the time is start to learn the guitar. And he he's in Elvis's trailer- um, and he's picking around on some like Bach or Beethoven piece. And then one of the fellows overhears and... Yeah, one of the guys comes in and hears this music being played and says <laughs> something about like, what is this Hong Kong shit? Yeah. And I think Larry's response is like, oh, it's Bach, you Philistine. <laughs> <laughs> they packed up all the shampoos and stormed out. Yeah. I don't know. That's what you want from the Memphis Mafia. Yeah, I don't want any of those walking into that room and going like, hey, this is nice. Tell me about it. Right. Teach me. And then sitting down like, where does this music come from? Right. right. <laughs> Which is something, I mean, it wasn't so much with the music, obviously, but that seemed to be like Elvis was always putting Larry in this position of trying to impress these guys. They travel by bus for a long time because Elvis is afraid of flying for a while. 
And on one of these bus rides, I think Larry gets hopped up on some pills yep. at Elvis's behest. And Elvis urges him to like talk about all the books you've read because I think it'll do the guys some good. Yeah. And Larry in a pill fog just like talks and talks and talks for hours to these guys, which, yeah. God, I think I would resent Larry too. Oh, for sure. God. Just like pedantic talk yeah, about yeah. some like nonsense yeah. LA spirituality. But Elvis is really hoping that this stuff is going to rub off on the guys because it's going to do them some good. Yeah, it is. It is weird that he makes Larry. I mean, you think like Elvis, their unquestioned ruler, should be able to just be like, sit down, as he does later Mm -hmm. quite a bit. Sit down. I'm going to read a bunch of passages to you from the prophet or from the impersonal life. That's definitely an Elvis thing. Yeah. Sermonizing. I mean, Elvis gave him dexedrine the very first time they drove from LA back to Memphis Mm -hmm. because Elvis didn't like to fly, so he'd always drive. I think he's like dishing out like, why don't you take some of these? And then, yeah. Tell the guys about... You know, about the laying of hands. Go right. show Lamar about how you heal. <laughs> He's got a hurt nipple. Yeah. <laughs> Red gave him a real titty twister. Yeah. He drove he drove himself under a bus with this motorcycle. Needs a little help. So they'd all be in like an RV, I guess, or a caravan of RVs. And it was during one of those trips where Elvis had his giant epiphany. Right. Which Elvis is increasingly like, at this point, he's doing all this reading Mm -hmm. and becoming almost frantically disappointed that he hasn't broken through yet. Yeah. So it's on a bus trip from Memphis back to Hollywood and Elvis... He's always, like, putting off leaving. They always, like, wait to the very last minute. Well, since they don't have much time, that means they're basically riding straight through the night. So they're all popping pills. Yeah. And doing this drive without stops. Yeah, and I, they must be taking turns because at some point Elvis is actually driving the bus. Yeah. Let me interject. Yes. And we'll get back to this story. Mm-hmm. But just gut answer. Mm-hmm. Was Elvis a good driver? Yes. I bet he was a good driver, but I also think it would be, like, scary like, <laughs> like I, th- I feel like Elvis is all about like pushing the limits of whatever vehicle he's in. Wow. And he, and Including he, the human body. Yeah. He's all about like getting everything he can out of these like performance vehicles that he has. So I bet he's <laughs> like, like a, a really good driver, but I bet it's like a terrifying to sit in the passenger seat with him. I buy that. Okay. Continue. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so they're on this bus trip. At some point, I don't know if he's driving and talking to Larry at the same time. And he, yeah, he's really bummed about, like, I've done all this reading. I so want God to speak to me. I want the spiritual awakening, awakening, but it's not coming. And Larry's like, well, let me tell you how it is, E. (laughs) (laughs) It's not how it works. Like, you just have to, like, let it come to you. Yeah. And when you least expect it. It's going to happen. And so Elvis takes that information and doesn't seem like super satisfied. And during the trip, they they end up in the desert. And I took it as like there's a tour bus and then there's a caravan of other vehicles with the guys in it. Yeah. The bus somehow gets separated from the rest of the vehicles. So it's just Elvis and Larry and some of the other guys in the bus by themselves. And at some point in the desert, Elvis sees something. And he's got to stop the bus. He sees a formation in the clouds. And like, this is it. Like, God is speaking to him. And how has God spoken to him? He's shown him an image of Joseph Stalin in the clouds. And Elvis sees this. They stop the bus. They get out. And he's fucking freaking out. because, (laughs) (laughs) Because this is it. This is his, like, moment. A moment that, as Larry tells it, changes Elvis's life. This is God speaking to Elvis. Yeah. And Elvis feels it. He's wigging. They have, yeah, they pulled yeah. over in the desert. And I just get the impression Elvis just like ran out into the desert. Yeah. And Larry had to kind of run and follow him. The rest of the guys are just looking out the window. Yeah, right. Like waking up. And- 
Yeah, like what? <laughs> what's, what's what's Stalin doing up there? <laughs> yeah. But the 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 image of Stalin then morphs into an image of Jesus, right? Yeah. So like, there you go. That was it. That's what sold Elvis. Right. And then he's uh, shouting at Larry in the desert, like, "Don't you see? <laughs> God, God is love. Love is yeah. God." <laughs> that shit. I mean, his his mind is properly blown. Yeah. This to me seems like crazy, and it, it doesn't give. Anyone else pause in this book? Doesn't give Larry pause. No, no one stops to think about just how weird this is. Yeah. You see a picture of Joseph Stalin in the clouds and that's God talking to you? Like, huh? <laughs> I think it's that it turned into Jesus. I think that's the important turn. Because I think just seeing Stalin, it's like, that's like a, uh, that's more like a vision Roger Waters would have had. But it's almost, <laughs> but the, the transformation into Jesus is almost like an afterthought in this book. Like it's definitely like it's a it's Joseph Stalin in the clouds, and it's good enough for Larry because this, according to him, is a legit spiritual experience that changes Elvis's life forever. It absolutely does, and it probably Larry is probably aided in accepting this by the very fact that Elvis's epiphany happened in almost exactly the same spot That's in this right. vast desert that Larry had earlier had his own epiphany. Mm-hmm. So there's something about this. It's probably the ley lines, I imagine, or some kind of like sacred geometry of the rocks, which right. is creating this. So, Or just Native Americans. Probably that is a yeah. big part of it. Yeah. And probably Larry being very tired and yeah. just wanting to get to LA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get on the bus. And... Yeah. So, but then they get to LA and, you know, they're all hunkered up in the hotel rooms. And then uh, Larry is summoned to Elvis's room. And I don't know if at this point, but I imagine this is the case. Certainly later on, Elvis is routinely, if Elvis isn't on stage, he's in a hooded blue robe, uh, usually carrying spiritual books, very much like a monk. Yeah. Uh, So I imagine in this case, he probably was in his blue robe. But he announces to Larry that he's been thinking about his revelation and he's going to quit being a star. He's going to drop out of this movie. He wants to join a monastery. And he says, I know this is a big decision, but I trust you completely, Larry, as my hairstylist slash confidant. I will do what you tell me. So should I continue to be Elvis Presley, the world's most famous man, or should I quit now, having now seen Stalin in the clouds and uh, become a monk? To which Larry, in Larry's credit, gives Elvis the best answer, which is... Go to sleep, Elvis. Yeah, why don't you sleep (laughs) on it and see how you feel? (laughs) And lo and behold, I think the next morning, Elvis is like, yeah. (laughs) Well, (laughs) banana split breakfast or go drive over to the monastery. (laughs) Well, let's have a couple banana splits and one thing leads to another. Yeah. Genuinely a world-changing decision. If Elvis in early 60s had done like a Leonard Cohen and just dropped out and entered (laughs) into some like, you know, some monastic religious study. Yeah. It's not a world world I want to live in. No. This would be an even duller podcast if we were just talking about (laughs) Elvis's teachings. So the psychology Larry is accused of using on the guys is extraordinarily funny and plays a big role in this book. <laughs> it's this idea that the guys are worried because of all the time Larry is spending with Elvis alone that he's using psychology on him mm-hmm. and also using psychology on them. So they're very wary. I don't know what they think psychology is. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a very. Yeah, like, it's ve- yeah, it's very much like Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> It's a superstition that's taken a half step towards science. 
Yeah. You know, it's the same thing. Like, oh, this guy, this outsider, uh-huh. he's probably like weaving webs, like doing witchcraft at our brains. Yeah, yeah. But like they've heard this word psychology, so they're just kind of sub subbing that in essentially. Well, and Larry's not going to be the only guy like working psychology on people, right? This kind of brings up the colonel and his masterful head games. And we should say now, you know, our eternal quest here is to find the truth about Elvis. And so each book is its own version of that truth. It's a Rashomon situation. Mm-hmm. But this is yet another book. This and Gale both require, if one is to believe their narrative fully, that multiple people involved in the stories have psychic powers. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, this one has Elvis having the power of healing. The colonel is a master hypnotist. Right. There's mention, I think, of Gladys having premonitions. Yes. I mean, there's the famous story of like a car fire on the way to or from the Louisiana hayride that she somehow knows about. Right. So the story that you're getting at now is like, yes, they're on a movie set. Elvis is off doing something. The colonel comes in and there are a couple of guys hanging around. With Larry, yeah. there's Charlie, and I can't remember the other guy. It's Billy or Marty, I think. The colonel is like is hypnotizing these guys to do stuff. He comes in and basically tells like Charlie, you're gonna act like a dog, and then the other guy, you're gonna act like a monkey. Yeah. And then, as it's told, like this is what the guys do, like howling and ooh ooh and ah ah and kind of stuff. Yeah. Is, is happening. And I don't even know if he actually says to them what his expectations. Like yeah. I think in the story, like he just walks on the set. It's an active movie set and whoever it is marty or billy just drops down starts Ooh, ah! yeah. and then he like turns his gaze onto charlie who just drops to all fours <laughs> which larry sells in the book as a sign of him being a master hypnotist right and there is a big turning point that we should we'll have to discuss that comes later where uh he turns that hypnotic powers on elvis but I think it's much more believable to think that this is only a display of his power of those guys and yep. their acknowledgement of that power. Yep. At some point, I imagine they were all in a room together. The colonel was telling them that he is hypnotizing them. Mm-hmm. He's saying, Charlie, I'm going to hypnotize you right now. And when I snap my finger, you're going to think you're a dog. And that's going to be the case for the rest of your life. <laughs> and Charlie goes, okay. And then he goes, okay, colonel. <laughs> And then he goes through the entire hypnotic, you know, he gets out his pocket watch and all that. And I'm sure the entire time, the colonel, Charlie, and everyone else in the room is going, there is no hypnotism happening. Right. And we all know this. Right. Right. And then he puts his watch away and snaps his fingers and Charlie drops to his knees. Right. right? And then for the rest of his life, you know, anytime the colonel shows up and does that. Right. And yeah. And maybe Charlie's not the best example, because I could also see like Charlie is a guy who really likes to get a laugh. Right. Mm. And pretty much every story you hear about Charlie, like he's somehow lightening the mood. So like if, if Charlie can get people to laugh, he's going to do it. But, and maybe the colonel knows that. So like it all works to the same effect, no, no matter what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I would say even if Charlie was like dropping to his knees in that first instance, as the years pass, yeah. there is a point where it's not a laugh anymore. And it's just Charlie dropping to his knees. Yeah, yeah. The colonel's basically has this power. Right. So that's a very cool thing. The idea of Larry's world where the colonel has these eerie powers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the colonel is very concerned about Larry's eerie powers. But do you think Larry is genuine in his spiritual beliefs? Like, do you think he genuinely thinks he can heal by laying Uh of hands? I do. I do too. Yeah. I think he's earnest. Like reading this book, I think there's a credibility to him. 
Right, which is troubling to me because in reading the book, I did have that feeling as I read it, I thought like, this is a good accounting of these times. Like this seems pretty fair handed. Mm -hmm. And yet when I was then accumulating my notes, you know, all the individual incidents start to really stand out. Right. Outside of the dross of all the verbiage surrounding them. And you realize like, God, half of this crap is just fucking insane. Like, yeah. It's all visions and, yeah, healing and all this crap. And it's like, you can't help but think, like, maybe he's using psychology on us. Like, in his book. <laughs> oh, no. Right? Uh, then he's the master. <laughs> well, he might be that good. <laughs> he's hypnotizing us through, through a book. He wow. might be that good. Or he just knows how to, like, lay things out. I know very early on, I was sold because there is this story about Larry and his friends first meeting Elvis which is well before they started working together, mm -hmm. where he's a teenager in L.A. with his buddies. Yeah. They go to see an Elvis show, don't have tickets, and can't get in. Right. So they're horsing around behind the auditorium or whatever. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, Elvis and a couple of the guys are back there leaning against a car, being cool. Yeah. Larry works up the gumption to go say hi, and he has a brief chat with Elvis. And shakes his hand? Yes. They touch each other and probably heal one another's oh, yeah. sore palms. <laughs> And then that's it. That's the end of the story. Right. And that for me was a very compelling and believable anecdote. And it, for my, it set the stage for my belief in him. And it's reinforced later on because he brings that story up with Elvis later. And Elvis is like, oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah. Which I don't know if you're way into your own shit and you're writing your book. That's a perfect opportunity to be, be like Elvis then told me like, yes, I remembered that meeting. It touched me deeply in my soul because it felt like I'd met a brother that I didn't have. Yeah. You know? I remember when we shook hands, a spark went between my hand and that man. Yeah. <laughs> I knew someday we would, yeah, reunite. Right. 100%. Our paths would cross again. Yeah. And also the fact that that story ends with those guys not getting into the concert. Yeah. <laughs> Almost yeah, yeah. being like, well, enjoy the parking lot. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> I mean, that really, that's such an easy get. Like, mm -hmm. oh, and then he let us in and we had right. a great time and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, yeah, that set the stage. I think that's part of his psychology. He knows early on, you get him believing, you tell him something very true and get him believing. Mm -hmm. And then you start unraveling, healing and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And dupes like us are like, oh, this Larry Geller is an all right guy. Sounds good. He's an okay guy. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so... The colonel's hypnotism comes right before there's a period where Larry is fired. You you balk at this designation. D is he fired or does Larry decide to leave? I mean, do you think he was not directly fired? I mean, that seems to be the way with Elvis. Elvis is not a big fan of confrontation. But like, I don't know, Larry makes a big deal of going off to think and writing a big long letter to Elvis about oh, right. why he's leaving. Right, right, right. So as the story goes, they are, I think they're in LA and Elvis gets up one night and goes to the bathroom and trips over, allegedly trips over a TV cord. Yes. Eats shit. And I say allegedly because there are questions about this. Most notably, the fact that when Elvis fell, he hit the back of his head, which if you trip, you, know, you tend to drop forward. And Elvis also says he felt like he was pushed. So I think Larry is kind of subtly setting the stage that there might have been an agent. Some funny business. Because what happens as a result is that Elvis is basically out um, for about a week. And he is just holed up in his bedroom. Uh, the colonel takes charge immediately and forbids anyone else from talking to Elvis. So there is a week where the colonel is going in and talking to Elvis all day long, every day. No one else can get to him. Mm -hmm. And when Elvis comes out, finally, after the week is done, yeah. he is like completely out of it, right? The way.
way Larry tells it, he's heavily fucked up on some. Like, he's not himself. And uh, the colonel's by his side, kind of telling everybody how it's going to be now. And one of his big pronouncements is, no more of those books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The way Larry presents it, it sounds like not only was the colonel just like pumping Elvis full of drugs, but was also using his hypnotic powers. Uh, You know, so Elvis comes out and the colonel makes these new proclamations and Larry says Elvis is just kind of sitting there looking completely out of it, ashen, and not meeting anyone's eyes. And yeah, there's the proclamation about no no more of these books, (laughs) which I'm sure everyone was happy about. And I think kind of indirectly, he, through the books, there's a couple other things that more directly put Larry out to the point where Larry is just no longer in this uh, privileged position he had been in, which leads to the quitting that you had mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. So the colonel makes these proclamations with uh, with the drugged up Elvis. Later on, Elvis calls Larry and his wife into his room and says, like, no matter what happens, I love you guys. Yeah. Then they go back to work on whatever movie they're going on. And Elvis, I don't know, is in a really sour mood. And at some point is like railing on the masters and how they're, they just <laughs> want to control people's minds, man. And I think it's at this point that Larry's like, you know what? I need to step away. Mm. And in stepping away, he's summoned to Las Vegas, like Marty Lacker calls him. I was like, hey, we got to go to we got to go to Vegas now. The boss wants to go. And Larry's like, I just can't go. I got to skip it for my health or whatever. And that is when Elvis goes to Las Vegas and then kind of a whirlwind ceremony weds Priscilla. Yeah. And that's when things kind of end for Larry and Elvis's camp for for the time being. And that was uh, particularly notable because secretly Elvis had decided that he wanted two best men. Marty Lacker and Larry. And Larry, yeah. But he tells Larry this and says, but keep it under your hat. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell Marty until the last minute either, so it would be a surprise for him. Yeah. <laughs> Just a fun surprise. <laughs> You're half as important as you thought you were, which sounds a little suspect, you know? Yeah, no one knew it because Elvis wanted to keep it a secret, but I was going to be his best man at his yeah. wedding. It's like, hmm. I can kind of also, well, tell me what you think. Could you see Elvis being a guy who may have, over the course of a year or so, told about six people that they're going to be his best man? Yeah, I can see that. So, yeah, so he finally marries Priscilla, by all tellings, not that enthused about it. And yet Priscilla had been, when she first arrived on the scene, you know, Elvis was in a very desperate state where he seemed convinced that Scylla was going to save things and make things better. Yeah. He's kind of like a kid with everything he gets into. He needs it now and he can't think of anything else. Mm -hmm. And like he's obsessed, right? Yeah. And that was Priscilla and then he got Priscilla there and he's obsessed for a little bit and then he kind of started wandering. Yeah. And this is the same thing we see in this book. First, that same obsession with Ginger, who is his last lady love uh, after Linda takes off. But Ginger comes in, she's 19, I think, when they first start hanging out Mm -hmm. and Elvis is obsessed with her by Larry's telling he's really in his slide at this point I mean Mm -hmm. it's mid 70s and I would say this speaks directly to much of Gail's questions and and that's all she was doing she was just asking questions about these you know Elvis's odd choices during his last year of life um, much of which she took as suggesting that he was preparing to fake his own death but which I think we noted at that point could just as easily be read as a guy who was just completely given up yeah. and knew he was dying. Right. And it just not only knew he was dying, knew
knew his body was failing, Mm -hmm. felt powerless to change anything around him, which this book really paints in a very compelling way. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? I think so, yeah. The physical shape he's in in the mid-70s, as told by Larry's diaries. I mean, like we said, you know, he wakes up, he's covered in bruises, he's always in pain. He seems really to be leading an increasingly miserable life. Yep. Which I guess is the lot of all drug addicts at some point. No matter how rich you are, you're just in a, have nicer sheets on the bed you spend your entire life on. Yeah. And it really sounds like on stage he comes to life. Elvis seems to be fed by performing. Yeah. And it's really, truly what he lives for. Yep. But increasingly, his life off stage gets very small and very dark and very depressing. Yes. He's created this bubble that he lives in and he's just like this really deep rut. Yeah. Elvis is clearly a creature of habit and he just doesn't have the fortitude to make the simplest changes, it seems to me. And he seems so afraid of change, you know, like. It's a fear of the unknown or the struggle. You know, I think we've read more than once in these books how not a fan of confrontation he is. So, like, he can't even confront not with just people, but just like the issues in his life. I don't know. He just needs to make like the simplest effort and he just seems incapable of doing that. Yeah, he needs to be able to take an independent step and he doesn't seem like he's willing to do that. Right. On some level, it almost feels like he eventually understands that mm-hmm. and sees that that is partly why he everything's kind of crumbling yeah. within him. And I think recognizing that and also feeling powerless to change it is probably a big turn for him where he does feel like he just gives up at one point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In this book like he acknowledges like i'm gonna die there's nothing i can do about it yeah why um, are you talking like that e <laughs> <laughs> so in larry's diary it really paints the picture that elvis is basically alone in his bedroom looped out on drugs and just ruminating and the ruminations fixate on different things i need this now i need this i need this and yep. of course nothing helps mm-hmm. and one of those things at one point is ginger yeah And Ginger is, of course, flattered and interested and seems like a decent lady. Mm -hmm. And, of course, she wants to date Elvis and all this. So she's game. But the level of devotion Elvis expects from this person is really off-putting. Yeah, and it's so obviously hypocritical of Elvis where, like, he demands her total attention. And so, like, she'll go and hang with her family or whatever, and Elvis resents that. Which, I don't know, I I would think if anyone understood, like, someone's attachment to their family and their mom, like, it would be Elvis. But there's no self-awareness as far as that goes at all. Well, it really seems like a mental problem at this point. Because you're right. Like, I would think if anything, Elvis would really value that. Mm -hmm. Like a young woman who really values her family. But he's at this point in his deterioration where he can't even see it. Yeah. And he does that, too. There's a story in the book where um, Linda Todd... Thompson's parents, like they're waiting at Graceland for him. I think this is while they're talking about the the movie they're going to make. The, yeah. The karate new, movie. New Gladiators. Yeah. He's like so jazzed about that. He's like, you know, well, he, why don't you come on down? Linda's parents are downstairs. And he's like, no, they're just going to have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> I think he gets pissy. Like, I think yeah. They, I think he has them waiting for like an hour or two. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe Pretty twice. disrespectful. It's pretty <laughs> shitty. <laughs> Yeah, and he's up there just like pilled up telling Larry about, yeah, writing the new gladiators. Yeah, the spiritual origins of karate. Yeah, and he wants Larry to write it because Larry knows about the spiritual meaning of colors, which makes it sound like a killer fucking book. Yeah. Excuse me, killer movie. Yeah. Like, I really wish that had gotten made. We really lost out by not having Elvis produced movies. Yeah. If Elvis had lived, like, it'd be a different thing completely, but just like Elvis and Cannonball Run movies. 
Oh, wow. Dude. It's a good, it's an interesting question because you say that and my immediate thought is if Elvis makes a transition to those types of movies, does Burt Reynolds have that his career as we know it? Because he's doing a lot of that is kind of Elvis energy, and if you've got Elvis, I mean, you don't need Elvis and Bert in one movie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. I'd watch it. I mean, yeah, I definitely watch it, but it is like very but, similar energies. But hell yeah, Elvis and uh, Dean Martin, Sammy. There'd be a part for him in Smokey and the Bandit somewhere too, man. You think in the Jerry Reed? Like I could see him doing Jackie Gleason. Yeah, I could see him doing that. He's a real ham kind of sense of humor. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, but but like Dom DeLuise, if anyone is like is thinking his lucky stars, that didn't happen. <laughs> then you got like two guys smacking you around <laughs> in the credits. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Elvis would have loved to smack around Don Dolly's. I can <laughs> yeah. just see him both on like Johnny Carson's show. Yeah. Just like <laughs> knocking him around, laughing. Yeah. <laughs> at, at some point, Dom DeLuise stops laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because Bert's treating him like a piece of meat he owns. Like, yeah. Go on, Elvis, take a hit. <laughs> take a smack. This fat fuck doesn't feel nothing. <laughs> Feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> so. Back to Ginger. <laughs> yeah, back to the darkness. So yeah, he's multiple incidents in this book where he uh, takes Ginger to task for literally just calling her mom. I mean, it's awful because she is like 19 or 20. Yeah. And he starts, you know, he's indoctrinating her. He's reading her these books, which she can't possibly want to hear about. I know, but but she, along with Priscilla, is just, is just a blank canvas for Elvis to project all of his like hopes and dreams and th- his road to salvation. He... I idealizes these these two ladies ginger and priscilla in a way that's like turns them into something they can never live up to in his mind right yeah yeah he's definitely putting completely unattainable demands on these women but the, the thing that's missing is seems to be just like a, a human the relationship itself like do you want to hang out and do something fun elvis and just like spend time together it's like no no, I want to like turn you into this goddess in white who parrots back all this like spiritual shit that I'm pumping at you. And I just need a, like a human heating pad in bed with me. Yeah, he's kind of just wants a sidecar. Like he, you don't forget the feeling that in any of this, he's entering into an actual relationship with any dynamic between the two. He is Elvis and you are going to fill this slot. And yeah, it's complicated with Ginger because he is, uh, he makes a lot about her being Gladys's reincarnation. Oh man. It gets so, it's so tiresome and so icky. (laughs) Just like mentions it more than once in this book about like, I see my mother's eyes in Ginger. Just like Priscilla also like has a resemblance to Gladys in photos. And oh man, just so gross. Yeah. He makes a big point of that. And he has a few like very key dream slash visions that he shares with Larry that kind of support that and actually feed that idea. (laughs) One in particular, like I think it's Ginger talking with Elvis in the yard at Graceland. And then she turns directly into Gladys. Yeah. Who then jumps on a horse. Yep. Bareback, which is a big thing for Elvis. Mm -hmm. Like it's bareback. That must mean something. And then just as she's about, she starts horsing away. Riding the horse into the sunset, she turns and stops and says, it didn't work out with Priscilla because she was immoral. Oh, right. She wasn't moral. Right. And of course, Elvis, that's, you know, a revelation because he needs constant revelations. He's like constantly looking for epiphany. Yeah. He uh, needs that jolt, man. It's interesting, once again, that our feelings about the Greenwood book seem to be panning out in that 
I accept the idea that that book is completely made up. Yeah. You know, he is not related to Elvis. There's no secret aunt or any of this stuff. And yet the psychology behind that book, the psychological machinations seem very accurate. Yeah. I mean, they're inflated and they're darkened and they're turned into something completely insane in mm-hmm. the Greenwood book. But I think the basic ideas are like pretty accurate. Yeah. And we see it playing out here with Ginger being Gladys's reincarnation. He makes a big deal about, you know, as hard as his boners get, he's not having sex. They're not going all the way. Right. Come close a couple of times, but uh, I want to do it right this time, Larry. Yeah. And he equally tells Larry that a couple of times, like, man, things got hot and heavy. Yeah. Things are yeah. really going man, my pants hurt, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Larry's just like, oh, yeah, great. <laughs> so he makes us, yeah, he makes a whole stink about not wanting to uh, pork ginger because she's moral and he wants to do the right thing mm-hmm. and all this shit. But then you think like, well, maybe that ties into her being, you know, and Elvis's kind of woozy, druggy mind. You know, it's also Gladys's reincarnation. Yeah. That he'd be like stuffing it in, which is kind of gross. Yeah. It's really gross. <laughs> <laughs> Taking a definitive stance on that? Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think now. My mom's reincarnation. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. But what's also very interesting, a lot of this moralizing from Elvis may in fact have been as a kind of cover his impotence. Yeah. Well, he's got Elvis pretty much like lamenting to Larry. Like, it's just not... It's not working. Like he paints a picture that Elvis is in like a really, just like a, a real valley of his life as far like the stresses are piling up. He's being overworked and he's treating his body like shit. Yeah, his body, they confirm in this book that he did have a twisted colon, mm-hmm. which Gail had said, and we kind of snickered at being less yeah. insensitive and thinking that was silly. But yeah, twisted colon, glaucoma, and uh, bad kidney or liver, I forget. Whichever the ones, I think the you one pick that- Pick one. It's probably, <laughs> you're probably right either way. It was interesting, this obsession with, like, controlling Ginger and, you know, not having her talk with her family. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, earlier Larry talks about when Elvis bought the Circle G Ranch. Yep. Because he was out motorcycling and he saw this field with a 50-foot cross in it. It turned out to be a ranch that was for sale or he just offered to buy. So he buys this ranch and he's going to have everyone live there. And it's going to be uh, a way for him to regenerate, get back on track, get back to nature and all this. Mm-hmm. And so he does. He buys everyone like mobile homes, which he puts onto this ranch. They all move out there with the families. Yep. They all get trucks and horses. He's just like throwing stuff at people. And he gets them all out there and it it kind of falls apart because people figure out where he lives immediately. So he just has people standing at his fence, basically watching them do everything. So he kind of falls away. But like that and the whole ginger thing really made me consider the fact that Elvis, in a way, was not consciously moving into trying to create almost like a cult leader world yeah because he did consciously want the circle g to be like a commune mm-hmm. you know he gets all the families out there they're all separated they're all totally dependent on him mm-hmm. for their livelihood he's already into all these spiritual teachings i mean later on in the 70s he's like sitting all the guys down have lamar read passages yeah, those are great stories. Yeah. And he's constantly reading passages at Ginger. Mm-hmm. You know, he's really taking, there's these little traits that all cults, these forms they all take. And yeah. He seems to be instinctively doing that. Yeah. We'll have to see if he tries to change anyone's diet in any of these books. If anything, I think it's Larry trying to change his diet, and Elvis is pretty resistant to that. Yeah. Which is great. No, you talk about the cult leader and cult leader type behavior, and just specifically you talk about him having Lamar read passages from the book, and then him asking, well, what do you think about that, Lamar? And Lamar's reaction is like, 
I don't know what the hell I just read, <laughs> which is funny. But then there's also the story where he gathers all the wives and girlfriends. Yeah. And he's got a stack of $100 bills. And yeah. he gives like an hour and a half like sermon about his spiritual studies or whatever. Yeah. I love that they're referred to as his studies. Always studying. And he makes them sit through this. And then he, then he starts handing out $100 bills when he's done. Yeah. It's so great. Chris, Chris knew 100 <laughs> each yeah. wife. Yeah. That really struck me like I would find that so fucking insufferable. Oh, yeah. And especially over years and years of this, mm-hmm. you know, if you're just like Sonny West. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, Larry damn. does talk about like people rolling their eyes like behind his back and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it is interesting. I think there is something to that kind of instinctively wanting to or forming this kind of cult mentality and like, trying to create that kind of community around mm-hmm. him. It's I mean, interesting. If anything, he just doesn't have the follow through to like. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't follow through with any of this stuff. And that's, you know, Larry's argument that he seems to be getting at. It's like, he was like a spiritual person and he was a lot deeper than we recognize. And like, Mm -hmm. he really took this stuff seriously. But I don't buy that argument. Like, I do buy that he was interested in this stuff. But it always seems so like knee jerk. Tell me about that again, Larry. And these things occur to him in the moment. And it's like, yes, I'm super into this right now. But when it comes to like following the steps or like changing your diet or whatever it's the same old thing always he doesn't follow through with any like meaningful change it's just like hey larry bring me some more books yeah it it seems almost more about like amassing books than it does about seriously studying i mean he definitely put the hours in you know he is spending like a decade surrounded by these books Mm -hmm. I think he did the reading and like was serious about it. But I do agree with you that the follow-up is what you need. And I think Elvis was always looking for, and this is, I think, a young person's idea of like enlightenment is the lightning bolt. Always looking for the epiphany. Right. Like, oh, I get it now. Right. And everything's cool. My whole perspective on life has changed. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what Elvis was always searching for. And you kind of get that if you read these books. It's like reading a self-help book. Yeah. Where you can read it and you're like, that makes perfect sense. And it falls apart immediately. Mm -hmm. Whereas really, if you're on, I think, an honest path to anywhere worth going spiritually, it's like it seems it is a daily, it's a daily effort. Yes. And it's like, it's getting on it and continuing on to it. And like and it's a very, it. yeah, it's a very unsexy process. Yeah. Yeah. There's no epiphanies. It's like more like you realize at one point, like, oh, I'm significantly healthier. Yeah. Than it's, was. yeah. It's not a lightning strike. It's like an accumulation or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I guess if I knew, I'd. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be doing this yeah. stupid podcast. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the studying thing is very funny. I find that always an amusing turn of phrase. It's always used, his studies. Uh I always picture Elvis on a bunch of pillows in his bed with his readers on. (laughs) (laughs) And like you say, surrounded by books that are all dog-eared and yeah. Yeah, all like open and just kind of folded over so he can keep his place. Right. And he's completely out of his brain on drugs, Mm -hmm. dozing off. And like half trying to read these things and just, which is probably a great state to be in because all these things just get like trapped into your subconscious, you know, you start dreaming about things and you don't know what's a dream and what's reality. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just spaceship bedroom. You know? Yeah. And then you go trip over TV in your toilet. Yeah, or fall asleep with a cheeseburger in your throat. <laughs> so there was one thing I thought was really funny. I guess hearkening back to this idea that, like, I think Larry is using psychology on us through the book and that I felt he was pretty credible until I kind of looked over my notes. Mm-hmm. There was one thing that really stuck out and I thought was so funny is that after Elvis lets Larry go, 
this is like the late 60s. I think this is like 67 to like 72. Mm-hmm. He had a five-year where, you know, the colonel hypnotized Elvis and right. got him to get rid of Larry. Mm-hmm. Larry says that during that time, he would often look back and see cars following him for a few blocks. And he was like, <laughs> I knew that was Elvis just keeping tabs on me. Yeah. And what I thought was so funny about that is what could Elvis possibly learn by only following you for a couple blocks? <laughs> <laughs> He's not learning where you're going. Just the fact that you go out and do stuff. That's what they're reporting back. So Charlie's coming back. Like, you find, what'd you learn? It's like, he leaves the house occasionally. <laughs> where does he go? Just He just goes, man. <laughs> All right, good work. Styles some people hate. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned him being followed, and so that brings up a couple of other stories. The first of which is uh, he's a pot guy, right? Yes. So on his first stint with Elvis, he's married to a woman named Stevie, and they are in Memphis, and they, like so many people in the 60s, like to smoke a little weed from time to time, and they've run dry. So they write back home to their connection, hey, send us some weed, here's a check. send us some lids. (laughs) Yeah. And so later on, he and his wife are driving around town in one of Elvis's cars and they notice they're being followed and so he gets to the gates of Graceland and notice this is this car kind of parked across the way and then he goes kind of screeching after it on a hair raising car chase (laughs) and eventually I think loses them or something but after this this car chase the police come to pay a visit and they decide to search his uh, motel room hotel room that he and his wife have been staying in and there's a lot of threats made the idea is they think he's a druggie and he's trafficking drugs or something. They yeah. want to bust this creepy pot guy. Yeah, this creepy LA pot guy with beautiful hair. El- and Elvis is, of course, is you know furious that they're giving his buddy a hard time and talks about if anything comes of this, we're picking up and we're leaving Memphis for good. Which, all right, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But nothing comes of it, and Larry's really scared, and he spends the night in jail. And then he gets out the next morning to a very apologetic sheriff. Yeah, well, he they are in Memphis. This is the, right after Elvis hired him or right when he was kind of feeling him out. So he, Larry and Stevie, go to Memphis for three months, mm-hmm. Elvis's holiday break. And they know they're going to need weed, so they bring a pound of Acapulco gold. Mm-hmm. A pound of go- <laughs> weed. It seems like a lot for three months. And I think they run out of that. And mm-hmm. so they need to order more. Yeah. Yeah, that whole story kind of blew my mind because, like, it is early 60s or mid-60s where in in Memphis where, like, drugs would be a big fucking deal. Yeah, the tenor of that story was a little off-putting to me as far as Larry goes because, like, that whole situation, he really puts Elvis in a bad spot, don't you think? Sure. And I think it doesn't make sense to me that Elvis's reaction to that is, like, if anything comes to this, we're moving out of Memphis. If I were Elvis, I'd be like, what are you doing, man? We got a good thing going here. Why do you want to fuck it up with that? I mean, it'd be one thing if Elvis, if you were scoring for Elvis or whatever, but it's made pretty clear throughout this book that Elvis is not a pot guy. And so I can't imagine that Elvis took a very favorable view of marijuana, especially at this time. That is what shocked me as well, because I always assumed Elvis was very against pot. Mm -hmm. And so especially at this time, he would have been really upset. Yeah. But he has no problem at all with it. Elvis at one point calls Larry's supplier. So he knows the name and the phone number of this guy. Yeah. And there's no talk at all about Elvis being upset that all this drug stuff Mm -hmm. is going on. So like apparently he's pretty casual about it. And they do get into Elvis does smoke pot in this book. Yeah. They do drop acid, which we should talk about. Yeah. And they do cocaine. But yeah, that's what really shocked me is that his laissez-faire attitude towards it. Because, I mean, you got to remember, like, I think it was like 67, which is years after that. The Stones got busted with mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, drugs and weed. And it was a yeah. huge fucking it was scandal. It a huge deal. That happened to the Beatles too, right? In England, like it was a big, big deal. Yeah, Lennon was going to get deported from the US because he had a marijuana possession bust in UK. Yeah. So it was that big of a deal. Right. You were like one of the biggest stars in the world and we're going to mm-hmm. kick you out of the country because you have weed. So like yeah. years before that, in this like southern town, having a pound of <laughs> marijuana being mailed to you. Yeah, but it all works out in Larry's favor because the weed never comes. Comes, right? That, I think because Elvis called the guy and said, don't mail it. Yeah. And so after this whole portion of it, they still are on Larry's back. So he wakes up one morning to like pounding on their hotel room door and the, it's the sheriff and he's got a piece of mail for, for Larry and he says, yeah. you're going to open this now. And Larry, of course, is very, you know, he's very nervous, but then he's very tickled yeah. when he opens up the mail and it's like two pictures of Jesus or something. It's like a Jesus newsletter. Yeah. Like the front cover is a big picture of Jesus' face. And after that, they didn't have any more problems with the cops. Yeah. So. Little did they know that newsletter was printed on a blotter acid paper. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and his wife just gobbled it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just like to reiterate, it's just like such a stupid move on Larry's part to like be doing that and for Elvis to be like cool with that is that that kind of blows my mind. It's strange. And it gives a real credibility to the rest of Elvis's circle not wanting Larry around. Yeah. You know, Larry's always like, it's because I'm spiritually enlightening Elvis and I'm right. doing all these beautiful things. But it's like, no, <laughs> it's like you're having pounds of drugs being right. shipped to you like you are trafficking weight. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is pretty valid. And he does get them all doing drugs. I mean, obviously Elvis is already doing drugs, but at one point they do, Elvis goes on like a week of like smoking tons of weed. There are a couple of things that he just kind of mentions. And one is the tons of weed. Like they spent a few days smoking weed and then it's like Elvis didn't really like it. So he didn't do it after that. Well, it's because his tolerance is so high. He has to smoke so much because he's so used to regular, normal, or I don't want to use the words regular or normal. Pharmaceutical grade? Yes. (laughs) That the weed doesn't really affect him. So he's worried about his throat because he has to keep smoking. Oh, that's right. And then there's, and then there's a similar thing where it's like Elvis wants to get drunk. Yeah. So they go on like a three day bender where it's just like, Charlie Hodge fixing him drinks and everybody's yeah. drunk and I think they mentioned like three days and it's like well Elvis didn't really dig it so he never really drank after that yeah they had him drinking 15 to 20 mixed drinks a day <laughs> so he would just drink all day drinking like serious liquor yeah you know but again it's because he had this crazy tolerance it was like so used to being hammered yeah I didn't even think about it that way yeah that would kill a normal I mean that's for like a drunk 20 drinks is a that's, fucking that's lot. a lot and to have never had any experience with alcohol like oh, yeah. holy shit i'm sure they're like the sugariest drinks too like oh, yeah, dude. it's just like headaches in a glass oh yeah she's oh, so icky for sure uh, but then i don't know if he talks about it before or after but that leads to the elvis wants to trip acid which must have been very fashionable at the time because they get some other people on board let me see it's elvis larry priscilla jerry Schilling, and sunny west decide to yeah. trip acid window pane as he calls it <laughs> which I, I do you know what that means i've always heard I, window I pane no acid. idea yeah if i were to ever do like a nugget style 60s garage rock psychedelic band mm-hmm. it'd be called window pain p-a-i-n <laughs> that would be the that would, it's like the perfect band that's name. good thank you <laughs> So it's not a very remarkable event. They take their acid and they're all trying to like be cool. Jerry disappears. They take their acid. 
<laughs> I think we just outed his ball in total squares. <laughs> Jerry Schilling disappears and they find him like under a like a load of laundry in a closet, <laughs> which I think is really funny. That's he's definitely sniffing panties, right? Yeah. But then she doesn't have a bad trip, but Scylla's kind of a bummer. She just starts like yelling at Elvis. Oh, you're going to leave me or you're cheating or whatever. She gets on. You never love me. Yeah. That whole trip. Heavy bummer. <laughs> yeah. You never But drive. she snaps out of it eventually. And then they kind of ride it out. It sounds like it's pretty mild. Like they watched the time machine, ate pizza and marveled at the beauty of nature and talked about what great friends they all were. Yeah. That's not a quote, but that's, <laughs> that's pretty much what happened. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Priscilla definitely brought some heavy vibes to it. Yeah. Not cool. Never drop with your bitch. I think that's the take home from that book. Yeah. That's probably what Larry wants us to pull out of that yeah. story. Yeah, I was shocked by that. I had never really heard that elsewhere. No. I mean, that might be another case for Elvis. I mean, there's no talk of Elvis being affected at all. And again, that might be from the drugs. I mean, at one point, they talk about Elvis wanting to taper off of the drugs he was taking, which were sedatives, uppers, and hypnotics. And I don't know what a hypnotic is yeah. or why you would take that, but I got to imagine that must prep you in some way for a psychedelic experience. Maybe so. I don't know. Know. Would that be some kind of like mental health type drug? I don't know. You're so not keep... well read when it comes to the PDR. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Brad. Uh, we recorded too much again. So we're going to split this into two episodes. Uh, and that's why the thing is kind of uh, end pretty abruptly. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. See you next week. Bye. Everybody is gone away.